Well, good morning. Thanks for joining us. How's everybody doing? We awake? Okay. If you're joining us online, thanks so much for doing that. Donald Miller is an author. He wrote the book Blue Like Jazz. And in this, he shared a story. It was Christmas time. And he kind of frittered away his money and really spent it on himself. And he just had very little left to get a gift for his mom. And so he ended up buying kind of this, what he called a shabby book. And on, on opening, on Christmas Day, opened it up, and it was kind of, he was embarrassed. You know, he had, his, his selfishness was on his display. Now, it's a mother. She feigned interest in the book, and, oh, I really think I'll enjoy it. And he said, you know, she probably never read it. And, and that's how a mom dealt with a son's selfishness. You know, we can be that way with God. Selfish with our lives, with our time, our talent, our treasure. How does God deal with that selfishness? Does he feign interest? What does he do? How does that play out? We're going to talk about that this morning. So if you've got a Bible, if you'd open it to 1 Samuel 8, we're going to go through this chapter and wrestle with the question, how does God respond to our selfishness? How does God respond to our selfishness? Now, even if you haven't been with us, we're going through a series called Reliant, and we're going through the books of First and Second Samuel, which is Israel's transition from a loose federation of states to a monarchy. When we opened the book, we met a lady who uh, was dealing with infertility. She prayed, God, if you give me a son, I dedicate him to the Lord. And the Lord, in fact, did. His name was Samuel. Uh, and Samuel, as God has grown up, to be a prophet, uh, to be the voice of God. As this transition has been happening, Israel has been dealing kind of with this ubiquitous, ever-present enemy called the Philistines. And earlier we saw a battle in which they lost, and they came into camp and they said, you know, the Lord defeated us. Not the Philistines, the Lord. They realized there was stuff going on. In fact, their, their priest Eli had two sons who were violating the Lord's sacrifice. Uh, they were immoral with uh, women at the door of the temple, and, and Israel did nothing about it. They thought, here's what we'll do. We'll, we'll, we'll get the, the Ark of the Covenant, and we'll take that into the battle, and we'll kind of force God's hand. Well, it didn't. They lost that battle. The Philistines captured the ark, and everybody thought, oh, no, God's, God's weak. He's, he's been shown to be weak. Well, what God did when the, the ark was in the land of the Philistines was afflict them with tumors. Uh, their God fell before the ark, and the Philistines thought, oh, the hand of God is against us. We need to send that hummer back, and that's what they did. And they had the idea that the hand of the God of Israel is powerful, more powerful than all. Still, for 20 years, it says Israel lamented. The Lord, because they kept having to deal with the Philistines. And finally, in the state of being broken, they came before God. God rained thunder from heaven, and, and they at least put the Philistine threat down, at least temporarily. That's where we are in 1 Samuel 8, and it starts this way. Now, it came about, verse 1, when Samuel was old, that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. That's atypical. Usually, God appoints judges. There's not a succession but Samuel appoints his son judges. Verse 2, now the name of the firstborn was Joel, and the name of the second, Abijah. They were judging in Beersheba. Verse 3, his sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Now, this is the second time in the book of 1 Samuel we've seen sons of religious officials, leaders, walk away from God. We don't know the backstory here. We don't know what's going on. These young men or older men are making decisions. But it makes us wonder, was Eli the priest and Samuel the judge so involved in ministry that they didn't have time to care for their kids? We don't know that. But for those of us to start who are in vocational ministry, 
It's a reminder, don't neglect your family, don't neglect your kid. And we can take that principle then to say, parents, you got a job, you're doing stuff, great, absolutely. But don't do that at the expense of your kids. Uh, Verses 4 and 5, it says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you've grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. This is their pretext. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. We want a king. Why? So we can be like everybody else. That's what other countries do. We want that. It's funny how we want the ways of the world. We feel comfortable. If everybody else is doing it, that's what we're going to do. If you've heard me speak before, you know I worked at, for a parachurch ministry for 15 years, Campus Crusade, and I had to get individuals who would write a check and they'd send it to headquarters and then they'd get to headquarters and they'd send me out a check. That drove my dad crazy. What are you doing? That was a source of conflict for those 15 years. Well, I left that, became a pastor, and all of a sudden, it was fine. No big deal. I say, dad, 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 dad. In one sense, they write the check and they send it to headquarters in Orlando. They get in and they, they write me a check. And the other, uh, it's, it's in the church and they drop it in the collection plate and the church financial secretary gets it and they write me a check. It seems to me I'm living off charity in both cases. I mean, I, I don't give anything tangible. I don't fix a car. I don't give them groceries. But if, if, in both cases, if people don't come through, I don't get paid. Oh, no, 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 Andrew. It's different. How? How is it different? Well, it was different in his mind because he had seen that in the world. He was familiar with that. He wasn't familiar with individuals sending to a church. My point, we get comfortable with what we know. But familiarity can be a form of idolatry. And that's what we've got going on here. Uh, Verse 6 says, but this was displeasing, this request, it was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel's displeased. So the text says he comes back and rebukes him. Isn't that what it says there at the, at the last part of verse 6? No, no, no. Samuel prayed to the Lord. Folks, that's a great model when we disagree with somebody before saying, let me set you straight. Maybe, maybe I'll talk to God about it. Because maybe what I think isn't what God has in mind. And in fact, verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people. Really? Yeah. Listen to the voice of people in regard to all that they say to you, for they've not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. They want something familiar. They want some model. That they, they want some king they can control. They can call him to account like we do with our politicians. How come? We'll write him a letter. We'll call him. They, they want control. Verse 8, God goes on. Like all the deeds which they've done since the day that I brought them from Egypt even to this day. In what? In that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. That's been their M.O., They don't want to trust me. And and Tim Keller says our heart generates idols. And they found other gods in which they're going to put their trust. Do we not do that the same with our job, our popularity, our 401k? We we generate other things in which we'll put our trust in God. And and God says that's the habit of my people. Verse 9, now then listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. 
Do they want a king? I don't think it's a good idea, but I'm going to grant their request. But before they do that, I'm going to give them a warning. And I'm going to read that warning in verses 10 through 18. What I'd like to do, and I realize translations are different, but would you follow along? And there's a recurring word here. I want to see if you can pick it out because I think it's significant. So here we go. Here's the warning. Starting in verse 10. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked of him a king. Then he said, this will be the procedure for the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties, and some to do his plowing and reap his harvest, and to make his weapons of war and equipment for chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your, your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. Then you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, your choice, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Is there a word that stood out there? Saw it five times. Verse 11, he will take your sons. Verse 13, he will also take your daughters. Verse 14, he will take the best of your fields. Verse 15, he will take a tenth of your seed. Verse 16, he will also take your male servants and your female servants. Verse 17, you will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. You know what this king, you want's going to do? He's going to take, he's going to take, he's going to take, he's going to take until you got nothing left. You sure you want to go this way with your ultimate allegiance? One who will take and take and take. God's going to let them have their way. God's going to let them have their king to show them their need for him. This is a selfish request. We want our way. We want our thing. How does God respond to our selfishness? He always answers our selfishness in a way that points us to our need for him. He'll answer your selfishness. He'll answer my selfishness in a way that points us to our need for him. Again, what did we say, verses 10 through 18, the king was going to do? He's going to take, he's going to take, he's going to take, take. The New Testament presents another king. His name is Jesus. Jesus is going to give, he's going to give, he's going to give, he's going to give until he has nothing else to give. Where, where are you and I putting our ultimate allegiance in one who's going to take 
and take and take or one who's going to give and give and give till there's nothing else to give when he gives his life. Now these kings have all kinds of applications in their lives. What are we about two and a half, three months away from an election? Politicians are going to be courting your vote. Be very careful of giving your ultimate allegiance to a politician. Oh, you're talking about Republicans or Democrats or Independents? Yes. Yeah. They'll take and they'll take and they'll take. So there's nothing else to give. Gordon McDonald's probably in his 80s. He was a pastor, he was a Christian leader. In 1963, he was living in Arizona. Uh, it was, uh, 1964, it was an election year. Uh, Lyndon Johnson, Barry Goldwater, he supported Johnson. And, of course, Arizona was Goldwater country. And he called his dad, who was a pastor. He said, Dad, I'm thinking about putting a Johnson bumper sticker on the, my car, back of my car. And his dad said, yeah, I'd be real careful. Be real careful about giving your ultimate allegiance to a person. Because those people will fail. I'd support causes, but I'd be careful about a person. I think that's a good advice. Our ultimate allegiance is to God in the elections. We're going to have to evaluate which candidate represents the purpose of God, but never does a candidate get our ultimate allegiance. Now, lest we pick on politicians, I would say never, ever, ever, ever give your ultimate allegiance to a pastor. You need to get involved in a church, and you need to be part of a local church, not because the pastor says so. Because God says so. But you, when you're involved in the church, your ultimate allegiance is not pastor Andy or pastor whoever you're there because God called you there and you're serving in a ministry because God called you people get hurt in churches and one of the reasons they get hurt in churches is they give their ultimate allegiance to a pastor pastor says do it and they do it yeah absolutely you're involved in a church because God's called you to local church is his vehicle for reaching the world but you're not ultimate allegiance is not to a pastor it's to God this is an application on your job. Your ultimate allegiance is not to the company. It's not to your boss. Oh, but Andy, they pay me $50,000 a year. I don't mean to be cynical, but you better generate $51,000 or they're not going to keep paying you $50,000. Now listen, I believe God has called you to that job, whether you're a nurse or a teacher or a custodian or, or whatever. I, I believe God's called you there just like he's called me here. And you give that company a full week's work. You give them your best. Why? Because you're representing Jesus to them. But they don't have your ultimate allegiance. If they do, they'll, they'll take and take and take. Now, you work hard, not for them, but because you represent Jesus. This is application, too. If you're a college student, think about getting a fraternity or sorority. Okay, if God calls you, absolutely go. You're representing him. But they will push you on your time. They will push you on your money. They will push you on their convictions, your convictions. So, Samuel, speaking the word of God, has given them a word of warning about their, you really want a king, you really want to go that way. Verse 19, nevertheless, the people refused to listen. That's an act of choice. We're not listening. I'm not hearing you. Okay, this is why in verse 18, when they cry out to God, God says, I'm not answering you. Your heart is hard. Now, you know, today, the word of God does not come through a prophet. It comes through the Bible. 
This is why we beg and beseech you, would you be in the Word of God? Because he's giving his counsel right here. But we can actively, like the uh, Israelites did, refuse to listen, or we can passively do it. We're just not going to pay any attention to this. Got to say, okay. You can go your way. We can be self-reliant instead of being reliant on God. God says, okay, you can go your way, and you will learn your lesson. He's going to refuse to answer this prayer, and these people will find out that the king they finally really need is God. Verses 19 and 20. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. So that why? That we may like all the nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. We're going to put our trust in our king. God said, I've tried to warn you. You won't listen. Okay. You'll have your king. Why would God answer a bad prayer? To show us our need for God. Show us our need for God. So I was a senior in college, I was 20 years old, and for the first time, people, I had an official girlfriend. That was a big deal. And I had some friends in Campus Crusade who were saying, you know, you might want to go slow on this, you might want to take this carefully. And what they saw was uh, emotional immaturity, uh, a lack of dependence on God, and a neediness in a relationship. And I thought, oh, no, no, no. You guys don't know. I'm a sensitive man of the 80s. I will woo her, and I will wow her, and it will be special. People that lasted six weeks before I blew that sucker up. She finally figured out who I was, and she said, moved on. She made a good decision. Now, if you're involved six weeks, it's really hard to be devastated when something goes bad. But here's what I didn't like when I stepped back from that. My dad was very controlling of my mom. My mom was a really petite woman, probably maybe five foot, 90 pounds, and he could control her. And you know what I said? I will never be like that. I will never be like that. You know what I saw in those six weeks? When I called and she wasn't there, I was mad. I was like my dad, and I was never going to be that way. And I thought, I need to work at the soul level. I need to work at the heart level. That was the fall of 1981. That set up 1982, which was the most dynamic year, calendar year, in my Christian experience. I went to a conference in January. That got me going. I moved in with a guy who taught me the Bible, and, and man, I just took off. Yeah, I look back on that now. In, in, in December of 1981, if you had told me I would be doing this for a living, it's kind of like, oh, come on, come on. By May of 82, the foundation had been laid. The groundwork was there. God, let me have my way. And I fell on my face, and I saw a need for him. I'm wondering, are you obsessed with being executive VP? Careful. God might give that to you so you could see your need for him. You obsessed with being first chair clarinet, starter on the football team, 34 in the ACT, most popular at the workplace. Is that what you want? Careful. God might give that to you. Did you see 
your need for him. Will you listen to God? Or are you like these folks refusing to listen? It doesn't have to go this way. But if we're not willing to listen, we're going to find out the hard way. We need God. Verses 21 and 22. Now after Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice and appoint them a king. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to a city. You will get your king. Now at the risk of being a spoiler, let me tell you, it doesn't go well. They get in Saul. Saul ain't very good at listening to God. And he gets replaced by the man after God's own heart. His name is David, and he's Israel's greatest king. Let me tell you just a little bit about David. Once David gets anointed and after he takes down Goliath, he becomes popular and Saul gets paranoid and starts chasing him around. And so David's on the run and he goes to a city called Nob. And uh, the priest says, man, what are you doing here? And David said, oh, I'm on a special mission from Saul. Well, that was a lie. And he needed bread and he needed weapons. And and so the, the, the priest gave them to him. Well, Saul had a plant. Saul came and said, what were you doing aiding and abetting David? 85 priests were slaughtered that day because David lied about his real purpose. Later, David's still on the run. And and remember, he's been anointed as king. God said, you're going to be king. And in 1 Samuel 27, David said, you know what? I'm surely going to die at the hand of the Philistines. So he goes to live with the Philistines. Israel's arch enemy. Later, he becomes king. David's got about six wives. He's got concubines like he's a busy man. And he's on the roof, and he should be out of battle, and he spies a woman and thought, I want her. So he calls her, and he takes her, he sleeps with her, and he impregnates her, and when he can't cover it up, he, he murders the wife's husband so he doesn't get exposed. But God does expose him, and there's consequences galore. Later, in his kingdom, David, instead of trusting God, takes a census, and Israel's judged for that, 50,000 or so. That's the best. That's the best humanity has to offer What's the point? Don't, don't put your trust, ultimate trust in a human being. They will let you down. One is worthy of your complete trust, and it is Pastor Andy. No, 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 it's, it's Jesus, sorry, Jesus. Jesus is worthy of your ultimate allegiance. Don't give it away. Because if you do, that person will take and take and take. Give your allegiance to one who will give and give and give. So summer 84, I was out in Fort Collins, Colorado for Campus Crusade training. Remember, I'd spent the last eight years or so in Texas where it's always hot. And it's a June day, and it's about 75 degrees, and it's going up to about 84. It's a beautiful day. And we are going up to Rocky Mountain National Park from Fort Collins. So we'll go down to Loveland, go west, go up Highway 34, and we'll get there. And, and, and I'm in shorts and T-shirt. And a couple people have been up there before said, you know, Andy, you may want to take a sweatshirt up there. It's 75. It's going up to 84 people. I don't need a sweatshirt. No, it gets a little cold up there. I mean, he tries three or four times to tell me, and... I'm just not having it. I don't need one. So off we go, and we go down to Loveland, and we go west on 34, and we start to climb. And I don't know, somewhere about eight or 9,000 feet. What do I see on the side of the road? I see snow. I see snow on the side of the road. Huh. Maybe I should have listened here. So I don't know. We get up right before we're going to get Rocky Mountain. It's a beautiful view, and we get out, 
We're going to look at it. And I'm jumping around, jumping around, jumping, 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 jumping. Why am I jumping around? They say, are you cold? No, 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 no. No, this is refreshing. I said to the people, this is refreshing. Okay, so then I, I end up getting placed out there, and I live in the front range for 15 years. I don't know how many times we went up to Estes, how many times we went to Rocky Mountain National Park. Do you know how many times I went up with a sweatsh- without a sweatshirt after that? Zero. No, 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 I learned my lesson. Zero. Why? How did that happen? Because I had to, in my stubbornness, I wouldn't listen. I had to learn the hard way. Okay, if that's true in humanity, how much more will God allow us our selfish requests that we'll see our need for him? My hope is we're not like the people of verse 19 who refuse to listen. But even in our selfishness, God will redeem that to point us to our need for him. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we're grateful for your word. It's a little convicting sometimes because I think we all see our, our selfishness. You can't tell me. And I just won't hear it in my mindset. And, and Lord, forgive us when we're there. I am grateful that your character of nature is you will point us, even in really hard consequences, to our need for you. My hope, uh, these my friends and I, would give ourselves to the king who gives and gives and gives until he had nothing left to give, rather than to a king who will take and take and take and take until we have nothing left to give. Lord Jesus, that we'd embrace you in your fullness and wholeness. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.